So we're here looking at the book of Second Chronicles. This, uh, this is the installment of First and Second Chronicles for the progress of redemption in these books. So we've made it all the way to this point. Um, I uh, have taken some liberty in carrying both of these books together. Uh, I think it's important that we, we look at the context that the books were given, the books of First and Second Chronicles. So the books of First and Second Chronicles were given, uh, written after Judah began to return from Babylonian exile in 538 B.C. And so this is, this is a chronicle that was written after all of these events occurred. The monarchy uh, is very much over, basically. Uh, but yet again, this book was provided for the express purpose of giving a people in exile hope. Hope for the future. Uh, so if you can imagine, again, these are people that are in exile. It's, it's as if um, God's people had been parachute dropped into a foreign land. Are you with me? Uh, with the people that are very aggressive in opposition to the things of God, the Word of God. Uh, and they are yet, a number of them, crying out to the Lord, desiring to be faithful, desiring to hear the word of the Lord. And so this is, this is the context. So hopefully you began to recognize some similarities in the situation that the exiles in Judah had and the situation that you are presently in. Because you are not in your eternal home right now. You are dwelling in a land... Uh, of people that are hostile to the gospel and hostile to the ways of God. And they infiltrate our mental, spiritual spaces, right, and draw us away from the things of God. And so we must, as God's people, stubbornly insist that we are His people, that we, in fact, are citizens of a different kingdom, and that the future, in fact, looks very bright for us. So this is potentially one of the youngest of the Old Testament books written around 400 BC or maybe maybe even later. The theme of these two books, the Davidic covenant as the basis of Israel's life and hope. Again, the promises, the covenant given to David that of course didn't uh, was not at cross purposes with the Mosaic covenant uh, expressed basically Investment in two institutions derived directly from this covenant, the monarchy and the temple. The monarchy and the temple, both reflections and projections of the glory of God in eternity. So I might draw your attention to the Davidic covenant. We see that in First and Second Chronicles. But I would draw your attention to this simple little word, forever. You say that with me? Forever. Now, the word forever does show up in the scriptures, uh, and sometimes it, it, uh, it, we, you know, it, it may be um, amended uh, such that uh, it might have some slightly different meaning than what we think of as eternity in the future. But nonetheless, the purpose here and the idea here is that the Davidic covenant, the promises made to God, are well on their way to being fulfilled. And this exile was seen by the people of God and by God Himself as something did not stand in the way nor hinder the progress of God. We are, we are yet moving forward with the monarchy and the temple. 
right? We have a king, and he is the son of David, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he is Lord of heaven and earth. And we have a temple, a temple made without hands, right? We, God's people, are the ultimate fulfillment that we see here in the Davidic covenant that will again see our eternity in a new heavens and a new earth, right? So again, these ideas are, should be very refreshing to us as God's people that really are living in exile away from our homeland, the new heavens and the new earth, and yet this to us should be uh, very, very hopeful. We have more light than they do, and so we should be all the more thankful for it. God's committed to maintaining the covenant even though uh, apostasy and exile are in the midst of God's people. It continues forever. This point is frequently celebrated in worship, and yet there are, of course, conditions to celebrating and enjoying this covenant. Right? God has certainly met His condition. He is faithful. Right? And we recognize that that, uh, as we, again, focus ourselves on the faithfulness of God, on looking to Him, on following Him, we then enjoy more fully the sweet blessings of the covenant. The reforming kings took measures to ensure Judah's life came more into conformity with the law of Moses. And this was all, of course, part of the Davidic covenant. And the chronicler's interest here is not uh, necessarily primarily in the temple furniture, but in the temple people. And that's appropriate because uh, we, again, we, who are we, right? I mean, the new temple, it's not the furniture, right? It's the people, right? We're a, we're a temple of the Lord, okay? And so, and so just as Josiah... Uh, spent a significant amount of time in his early reign cleaning and purifying the temple. That, of course, is yet an emphasis for God's people now. And we also see that the glory of God, the Word of God, is also very important in that idea. And we see that in this passage of Scripture read in your hearing. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 indicates that God's people are the temple and that is where we meet God. So very briefly, First Chronicles contains genealogies and descendants through David and the tribes of Israel. Regarding Saul, his death and fighting the Philistines and his genealogy is all that's recorded. In First Chronicles chapters 11 through 29, they record all of the reign of David. They record his anointing as king, his mighty men, moving the ark not in the way prescribed by God, the death of Uzzah, David's wives and children. The ark brought properly to Jerusalem God's covenant with David, David's government, his administration, his organization of priests, of the military, um, of the elaborate preparations and material gathering for Solomon to build the temple. In the book of First Chronicles, you really see more of the administration of David than you do in First, Second Samuel or First, Second Kings. Now, I think that's particularly important because you may be inclined to think that David was a guy that didn't really involve himself in details, that all he really cared about was sharpening his sword. But that isn't true. The reality is is that David literally gathered all of the materials for the temple before he died. David literally managed and brought together and set in order not only the military, but the priests, the musicians, 
the organization of the nation. So David was, David was an individual that was particularly gifted by God to do these things. And while he desired to build the temple and didn't, the reality is, is that the, the book of First Chronicles appears to indicate that he did, in fact, gather everything that was needed for the temple. And so we see that in the book of First Chronicles. In Second Chronicles, the first nine chapters are Solomon's reign, temple building, a long line of Judah's kings, of course, some good uh, and some not so good, until Babylonian exile. The kingdom of Persia established which swallows Babylon. Cyrus, king of Persia in his first year, allows the exiles to return to Judah and rebuild the temple, which he said the Lord directed him to do. So it may be a little bit confusing, but what happened is Judah goes into exile associated with Babylon, right? Babylon then gets sacked and overtaken by Persia. Persia is the new, uh, the new reigning, uh, dominating empire, and Persia then the first, and Cyrus... The emperor of Persia, the king of Persia in his first year, uh, then is drawn, really, uh, apparently directed by God to enter back into the temple and the progress of worship of the one true God. Our passage that was read in your hearing in chapter 34 of Second Chronicles focuses on one king in Judah, King Josiah. So King Josiah. He gets really two chapters in the book, uh, chapter 34 and 35, and then the last chapter, chapter 36 in the book of Second Chronicles, uh, is the demise and really uh, the ending and, if you will, the beginning of, uh, of, the, uh, of sort of the new uh, things that the Lord is doing at this period of time. So again, our focus here is on Second Chronicles chapter 34. But I want to introduce King Josiah with a passage out of 2 Kings chapter 23. You can turn there if you want, but I'm going to read to you 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 25 and 26 regarding this King Josiah. The Bible says, Before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart, and with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. Still the Lord did not turn from the burning anger of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. There's no reason for us to lose sight of the glory of God, and the Word of God, and the future of God's people as we look at this King Josiah. But I think it's important for us to kind of uh, perhaps uh, uh, think a little deeply about who this guy was, Josiah. Now, you heard the second Kings passage. It said that there was none before him or after him that were like him. That's a pretty significant statement. David is included in that. And so, what we see is the Lord's amazing work in this individual. And we will see throughout the life of Josiah the way that God takes the initiative to come to him just as he does to us and give to him life 
What occurred in Josiah's life was the same thing that John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus said must occur in our life. You must be born again. And there's absolutely no possible way that Josiah could have entered into the things that he did lest he was regenerated as a one that followed the Lord. So let's look briefly at Josiah beginning in 2 Chronicles chapter 4, excuse me, 34 in verse 1. And as we look through this, I, uh, my goal is to apply some of these things to us just as we run through uh, the situation here with King Josiah. Chapter 34, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Now, no doubt he had some helpers as he reigned. It does appear, uh, while we we don't have names here, that likely he had some that helped him. Um, you might be thinking of a little bit of Joash at this point and the priest Jehoiada that helped him. That's This is a different king, actually. This is Josiah. Uh, so, But nonetheless, he began to reign when he was eight years old. He died at the age of 39. Now, my application question for you simply, as we just look at this very first verse, is how are you doing after 39 years? Now, there's not a lot of folks in here that are, that are 39 or over 39, but nonetheless, I think it is appropriate for us to look at the life of Josiah and ask ourselves, how is it looking for a level of faithfulness after 38 years or 39 years? So this gentleman had recorded of him that there were none before him or after him that were like him. So we have a tremendous devotion to God and to the glory of God and to the right worship of God. Now, one of the interesting things that comes out in the book of Second Chronicles and in the life of Josiah that you see, you see that even though he had a measure of faithfulness that was absolutely comparable to the very best of the kings of Judah, what happened at the end of his reign? Absolute chaos. Judah is over as a nation. Judah's life as a nation is ended. And what happens next? Well, we see then, again, this transition ultimately from the physical to the spiritual to to God's people, right? Uh, Again, a continuation of God's people in the church. But nonetheless, we, we see that. My point in saying that is that Josiah was faithful, but he was faithful Apparently, in many ways, alone. Faithful alone, in many ways. The people of Judah were described as, in general, wicked. And Josiah was faithful. So again, what have we, what have we accomplished? The question here, have, have you, have, have I, have I managed to even overcome the sin habits of my mother and father? If, uh, if you haven't been told this, I'm, I'm going to have to bring the bad news to you that the sins of your mothers and fathers, the habits that they have that are stand in opposition to the ways of God, you're unfortunately going to get some of that. 
Now, thankfully, you get the good stuff too, right? And we praise the Lord for that. But the reality is, when you look at the kings, uh, which we have the most historic narrative information of the kings, we recognize that the sins of their fathers often completely overwhelmed them. And they, never, they actually never really overcame them, right? They stepped into the evil of their fathers, right? They, their, their activities were often described in terms compared to their fathers, you see? And so again, we want to ask ourselves the question, how long is it going to take us to build and create habits, right, that, that stand in opposition to and are the biblical alternative to the bad habits of our fathers and mothers? Again, there are many, many people that actually never overcome that. They never overcome that. They struggle day after day after day, even though they're redeemed, and they never overcome the sins of their fathers and mothers. I'm not proposing to you that you'll be punished because of the sins of your mothers and fathers, but I'm proposing to you that ruts are deep and that habits are deep. And we talked about repentance, not only of the individual sins, because sins are fruits of character. And character has to be repented of, as well as the fruits of that character, which are the individual sins. Does that make sense? And so, again, we look at, we look at Josiah and let him be to us one who would, again, direct us to the possibilities of our regeneration. Josiah obviously went well beyond the sins of his fathers. I direct your attention to verse 3. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved and the metal images. The eighth year of his reign. Let's do the math, children. So when did he begin to reign? He was eight, right? So in the eighth year of his reign, how old is he? You can say it. Sixteen. Public math is dangerous, I know, but you have done well. You've done well. Sixteen years old. Can you mark when you began to seek the Lord? This isn't one of those questions uh, that's implying that you need to know the day and the hour in which God regenerated you. This is not that question. But this is a question. Do you remember when you began to seek the Lord? When you began to seek the Lord. Certainly it was something that was initiated by God. But there's another modifier here that I think is important. He began to seek the Lord of David, his father. When you begin to seek the Lord, or as you seek the Lord now, who do you seek the Lord like? And how is the Lord that you seek described? 
There's a lot of lords out there that have little L's. But there's only one with a big L. So not only the one that we're seeking is the God of the Scriptures, the one true God, the master and commander of the universe, the one that doesn't just watch the sun come up, but the one that makes the sun come up. He's the one that controls every molecule in your body. He's the one that has cried out to us to follow Him, to repent, to walk in the way of the Lord. Josiah sought the Lord, the Lord of his father David. His God would be Josiah's God. In all of his, all of the ramifications of faithfulness, all of the expressions of the truthfulness of the Word of God revealed to him. Again in verse 3 here, we see that he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places. Now often when you read a section like this, which is not uncommon for a narrative of the kings, what you often notice is that they didn't do anything with the high places. That's not what, that's not what Josiah did. You see, what we have here is fruit of regeneration. What did he do? Well, he began, or at least certainly a part of his following of the Lord was what? A hatred of evil. Right? A hatred of evil. And I, I would propose to you that the way that he died, uh, although it appears to be a little bit dubious in the way that he apparently didn't listen to the word of God coming from uh, the king of Egypt, but nonetheless, it would be, I think we could be gracious and say it was associated with his zeal to purge evil. But nonetheless, we see here that he was very, very serious about hating evil about hating evil. Well, how did he hate evil? Well, let's look at verse 4. They chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence. In his presence? I mean, he has people to do that, right? I mean, couldn't he just command somebody to go over there and do that and to report back? No, no, no. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch this happen. And I'm going to be a part of this, right? But he goes further in verse 4. He says, He cuts down the incense altars that sit above them. He broke in pieces the Asherim and the carved and metal images, and he made dust of them and scattered it all over the graves of those who had been sacrificed to them. Here's an application for us. Do you play at destroying sin? There is sin. There is the character of sin. There are the fruits of the character of sin. There are things that we could call the machinery of sin, the, uh, the means of sin, right? When you confess, when you repent of your sin, what do you do with the machinery of sin? Do you set it in your closet? Do you protect it for another day when you might have a weak moment? What did Josiah do? He crushed it to powder. And he scattered it over the graves of those that were involved in that abomination. 
So how do you deal with sin? Often we play with it. Because we are a people, of all people, that we dance around the edges of destruction. Because we're persuaded that we can't fall in. We can't die, in fact. Right? But Josiah recommends to us, by his own life, what we do with this sin. Let's look at verse 34, 19. Now, the wind-up here to 34.19. So, again, it's appropriate that we, we see that Josiah is following after the God of his father David. He understood, obviously, to some degree, what it meant to follow David, what it meant to follow the God of David, right? But we see that there, there is something drastically missing. And what was that? It was the Word of God. Can you imagine that you would try to follow the Lord? And that as your children were rummaging around the house of your grandparents... They discovered an object that you had no memory of called the Bible. Josiah apparently had no memory of the Word of God. He had no memory. So here's one that's devoted and has expressed the fruits of devotion to the one true God, and yet he has no memory of the Scriptures. What does he do when he hears it? Well, 34.19 says this, When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. He tore his clothes. Children, the tearing of clothes is something that we see a good bit of in the Old Testament. Uh, and the idea here is, is that, uh, that it, it has such an overwhelming impact on the individual and a recognition uh, that there are so many things that I'm responsible for and yet have fallen far short of in the ways of God. And so it's a revelation of that. Very humbling. So here's a question for you. Can you yet be moved as he was regarding the Word of God? We read the Bible as a people who are committed to the Word of God. Do we not read it often as if we know what it says? When we're called to account, for instance, in the Word of God, when we, we have revealed some character issue in our own lives, how do we respond? Is it with a thoroughgoing heart of humility? Is it, is it in a way that Josiah did? Or do we... Do we kind of swallow it whole, as it were, 
and just kind of go on because we, we already know what the Bible says. We're, we're comfortable in the level of our sinfulness, right? As far as, as we are concerned, as, 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 far as, we don't, as long as we don't go beyond a certain point that's fixed in our heads, right? Josiah tore his clothes at that. And so, this is yet another opportunity for us to see the importance of the Word of God, of teaching the Word of God, of understanding the Word of God. Discovery of the Scriptures. I'd like to draw your attention to Second Chronicles 35, just one chapter over. In verse 3, So Josiah kept the Passover like it had never been kept before. Verse 3 indicates, He said to the Levites who taught all Israel and who were holy to the Lord, Put the holy ark in the house that Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, built. You need not carry it on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord your God and His people, Israel. Now it's possible that you're focusing on this little phrase, you need not carry it on your shoulders. And it would be appropriate for you to think of Uzzah and of them not carrying the ark in the prescribed manner with the rods through the rings. But it seems that most Bible students are persuaded that Josiah is not taking leave of the Scriptures here, but what he's saying is this. Dear Levitical priests, no longer is your primary job moving the furniture of the temple. Now is a time for you to enter into your primary job prescribed by God, and that is teaching the people the Word of God. Let the burden of carrying the ark on your shoulders no longer be your primary task. Now you serve the Lord by teaching the people of God, the Word of God. An urgently important idea that we see here, of course, in the life of Josiah. Now, Josiah also has a unique situation in that he had two sons and two grandsons that were also kings. Two sons and two grandsons. Now, I haven't, I haven't gone back through all the kings of Judah to see uh, what the other, how the other kings fared regarding their progeny. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I think that we should see a significant idea here when we see the tremendous responsibility that Josiah would have had in placing two sons and two grandsons on the throne. Again, following in succession one after the other. Those were replaced uh, often by kings of other nations, but nonetheless we see that that's the case here. And we see, again, a tremendous orderliness in the administration of of Josiah. But we would have to at least say... or at least look at the implication that perhaps there wasn't a focus on apprenticing his children into 
the leadership of king. Apprenticing his sons into the leadership of king. Now, unfortunately, what was common practice in that day, polygamy would immediately strike against the very notion of biblical fatherhood. Uh, It would make it very, very difficult for a father to be involved in the lives of his children because of the rivalness, the rivalry situations in the other households. That's difficult enough. But we should ask ourselves again this question. As we, as we think about the importance of following the Lord in our own day, of the importance of being faithful to Him, of, of really drawing from the glories of God as we anticipate you know, even heaven, even in this worship service, how do we approach the apprenticeship of those that follow? And I want to use the word apprenticeship because I think it may be a little more clear, a little more full, a little more distinct as we think about, again, you know, we think about a father and a son. And he says, son, put your hands in my hands. This is the way we saw wood like this. Or a mother in the kitchen says, put your hands on my hands. Look, this is how we make bread like this. A father says, look here, son, put your hands on this wrench. This is how we repair the car. And it, it, may, be, it may be that when we consider the apprenticeship of our children regarding the things of God, it may be that we, we so want to be careful about forcing them into the ways of God that we kind of may leave it completely to them, Right? Now, again, we want to be very careful with this because forced things uh, often don't turn out well, do they? If I force my children, and I am kind of like one of those Islamic teachers in the Middle East that has a little rod that strikes the little boy on the back if he doesn't recite the Koran properly, that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about apprenticeship. I'm talking about this idea that we present a joyful investment in the things of God. And we say, this is what the Lord is showing me today in His Word. Isn't it exciting as I meditate on this passage in Proverbs? My little son or my little daughter, let me tell you what the Lord is showing me in the Word. Isn't it glorious? But the reality is we may we may yet try to apprentice them like we apprentice them in math. Well, how do you teach math? Do you teach it like this? Honey, you'll never see this again. I hated it, and it's your job to hate it, but I just we got to get through it. Did you ever wonder why your kids hate math? Well, you teach them like that. And you don't give them much of a choice. But it may also be that you could say, Hey, I had to use algebra today. Let me tell you what I did. And this is how it worked out. Now, this isn't exactly a plug for mathematics. But it is a plug for a recognition of what it is to apprentice our children. Right? What does it look like in your home when you're about to go to church? Now I'm meddling. 
Yeah, we got to go to church this morning. Here we go. Here's the drudgery. We got to slough all the way down the 3,000 mile hallway in the YMCA to get to the wooden floor and all this stuff. What is it like? Right? I'm not asking you to fake it here. I'm just saying, look, are we building into our lives the character of a people who are enraptured by the joy of a living God? Let me tell you, you sang the same song I did just before this, this, this sermon, and I just want to keep singing that song. What a glorious thing it is, right? How are we doing at apprenticing those that follow us. I'm not only talking about your children. How long will you be preoccupied with your hobbies, your acquisition of things, your leisure, your frustration over unrealized expectations that keep you from apprenticing those behind you to be Christ followers? Thirty-four, verse twenty-one. Josiah says, "Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the works of the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in His book." Wait, I thought I was worshiping God. I thought I was enraptured with the glory of God as I anticipate heaven after I read Revelation chapter 4. What is the importance of the Word of God? Well, we considered last week, we, we looked at a term very briefly called deconstruction, and we looked at the way that modern culture is sort of tearing down and attempting to rebuild in some ways biblical Christianity. But we also see another thrust in today's culture, and that is this idea that I can separate Christ from the Word of Christ. That somehow I can, that's called piety. It's a perversion of piety, I should say. This idea that I can be completely drawn into the things of God, but yet not involve myself in the words of God. So the question for us, again, why did Josiah tear his clothes? He was very concerned about the parts of the Word of God that he knew nothing about. So my question to us today is this. How concerned are you about the Word of God that you know nothing about? How concerned are you about the things that you've briefly passed over, right? Regarding the involvement that you have in the Word of God, in the ways of God, in the will of God, in the way that you apprentice your own children. There are many, many... Many, many people that send off their children and they say, Honey, you know John 3.16, you're fully prepared for life now. You laugh at me. I have heard that said at a homeschool graduation. Really? That's all? That's it? Boy, that's empowering. But let me tell you what. There's a lot more verses in the Bible besides John 3.16. How concerned are we with the parts of God's Word we don't know? 
Verse 27, the Bible says, Because your heart was tender, this is what the Lord said, Your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard His words against this place and its inhabitants. And you've humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. How do you work at softening your heart toward the things of God? How do we do that? We have a God who must take the initiative in our lives. We know that we must be born again. We know that He has to give us life. We, we're not even wise enough. The depravity of our own souls before we were redeemed would draw us away from even the recognition that we need Christ. We have no understanding of that at all. But after He comes to us in faith, how do we continue to cultivate a heart that's soft toward the things of God? How do we do that? How do we think of that? How, how, how can we build a character in our lives such that we read a scripture and we're not immediately defending our own actions and ourselves against what it seems to reveal? We're saying, oh Lord, what have I done? There's a repentance here. But what is repentance but cleansing? I mean, do you like dirty or do you like clean? When we look at our lives, it may look like we like dirty. But God has given us the Word of God. He's given us the Holy Spirit, right? He's given us the hope and expectation of a glorious future. He's given to us the Lord Jesus Christ that we can follow and walk with Him and delight ourselves day after day, even though... Life is very, very difficult. Life on this earth is very difficult. But we know. Of all people, we know where we're going. This is not our home. Right? Josiah understood that. Let us understand that as well. How are we apprenticing those under us? How are you doing with that? We know that... We must be born again. Let's pray.